episode 50 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mike, we have come to the 50th episode of Brown and Black, and it's been one hell of a journey this one last year uh, that I feel has been transformative to me in so many ways. And the show, what I love about the show is the show's been able to capture all that transformation that has happened to me. I don't know about you. Well, not only has it been able to capture the transformation that's happened to, I guess, us individually, but we've also been pretty much chronicling what's been happening to the country. So this is, I, I think this we will look back on this as an enormously transformational point in, in our lives, period. You know, I think in our personal lives, uh, in, in, in what's happening in the world, uh, and just in the reason we wanted to do this show to begin with, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 50 episodes, what hasn't happened? Do you remember our first episode just like off the cuff? You know, I do. And and what I remember most is us not sure if pop culture was going to be relevant anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. So, yeah, because we started the show in April, yes. I believe. Of 2020 right after the pandemic hit. So you and I obviously had a relationship already with film criticism. We were bumping into screening rooms all the time. I had asked you to come on my show to talk about a particular movie that then became on the highly relevant podcast, a, a first reaction segment that became quite popular with people. People like to hear it. Yes. And that whole concept of the first reaction was really we we created that uh, even though it was it sounded very amateurish and not very professional but i think that's what people liked about it it's that you and i we, you know we were talking about well what's the evolution of film criticism and to me at that moment what really brought you and i together was this ability to kind of just say you know i'm trying to evolve the criticism stuff into the next chapter like what does that mean as opposed to taking a day or two to really think about the film and do a proper review for it. We're like, dude, what's the first thing on your mind? The credits are still rolling. People are still leaving. The lights are on. You know, it, it's it's quick, quick, just just brain dump on it. And you and I would just put on our phone and discuss our first reactions, our immediate impressions of a movie. And dude, we just it, it was like 10 minutes of just just dumping on if we liked the movie, if we didn't like the movie. And then I think from that moment on, we were like, okay, I think we should do like a show together. And I think that's when Brown and Black came together. Well, you know, what's interesting and ironic about that is that we, you know, I had guessed it on your show. We'd started doing the first reaction was like a, a way for me to be more included in your show. We were like, hey, you know, we should talk about pop culture. We should review movies on the show. That's going to be our thing. Yes. And then the pandemic hit and there were no more movies. And uh, and then we're like, okay, do people even want to hear about movies? And so the pandemic hit and then George Floyd hit. So it was like a one-two punch. Oh, man. 
and fuck pop culture at that moment. I know, and I think by the time this airs, we'll have just celebrated one year uh, in the anniversary of George Floyd. So that that really, it, it changed everything because now people talk about summer of 2020, and I've heard this said a number of times, as the summer of racial reckoning. And we were doing a show throughout that entire period. And I think in many ways we had our own reckoning about a number of things in terms of, Bro, <laughs> you know, the first episode was called race is rearing its ugly head during COVID-19. And we were alluding to, we all knew that racism existed, but we never fully talked about it in public. Calling someone a racist was criminal, man, at that moment. And so the fact that race was becoming way too obvious in the national and public eye to the point where it's like, wait a minute, I thought we had a code that we weren't really going to talk about it. And now all of a sudden you guys are going off, you know, you're going rogue. We got to talk about it. And that's where the title came in. And then we were talking about the overproductivity because people were getting burnt out. And we started realizing in the second episode that we all needed a break and that I had I was burning out, Mike. I was burning out. So the the first couple of episodes were really capturing race, not as pop culture, but race as social justice as equality in this country and how we all need to sort of take a beat, take a moment to really reflect on the ugly history, the ugly truth of this country that's all now coming out. And we have to have that conversation. Then Latinos became a part of the conversation. We were like, okay, I know it's black and white, but what about us? And then that took a whole colorism and self-hate sort of portrait of Latina society. And bro, 2020 was really more about flipping open the lid and just having a true conversation about how dark and ugly the world really is. The idea of talking about race out in the open, like you said, had not become a thing yet. You're the one who suggested brown and black. And I thought, well, that's maybe a little too on the nose. Maybe we should obscure it a little because maybe people don't want to necessarily have it in their face. But the reality is... Uh, I went searching uh, yesterday. Somebody asked me, oh, what's the name of the podcast again? I said, Brown and Black. And I went on iTunes and they were on I I to Apple iTunes and they put in Brown and Black and we didn't even come up right away. They had they were scrolling through all these things. Brown and Black, Brown and Black, Brown and Black. They were probably looking at Black and Brown, Black and Brown, Black and Brown. The thing is, the reason I called it Brown and Black is because everyone was using Black and Brown for something. I think there's even a Black and Brown show. So I was like, well, I obviously can't rename it like that. Why don't we just change the words around? It's still two people of color. Let's call it brown and black. And then that way we could separate ourselves from the black and brown usage that was always being said. So it wasn't just so that you would be first because you're brown and I'm black? <laughs> well, we know blacks rule the world, man. So Oh, yeah, we rule. That's for we sure. We rule the world. So I was just like, yo, let's just flip it here, man, because if we go into that black and brown, we're going to be confused with everybody else. You know, looking back at shows, you have to reminisce a little bit. And, and looking at the type of people we spoke to, we were able to have conversations with all the people we, we had, whether it was a little Marvin or Danny Ramirez or or, you know, or Barn or Hesse, but we really went after race. So even if we spoke to a John Leguizamo or a Spike Lee, 
we're talking about race. We're talking about that intersection. We had to. There was no culture, Mike. When Look, I know you don't like sports, man, but for a guy like me who... You and I would bump into each other at movie theaters. But, dude, I was going to museums. I was going to Broadway plays. I was going to events. I was going to music concerts. I was... I am a culture vulture. I live culture in and out. Sports included in that. Television and anything. Parties, conversations. I'm that guy that wants to be in the next big cultural event. I want to live in that fantasy because for me, culture is very important because let's be honest, guys. After 9-11 after something so traumatic where you can't separate reality from Armageddon, the movie with Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis, you just couldn't separate the two anymore after seeing that. Why would you want to live in that world? Why? You sick fuck if you still want to continue to live in that damn darkness. I didn't. I'm like, let me get the hell out of here and let me go to a rosy happy place that is fictional and doesn't exist even though it really exists it's called museums and it's called arts and culture and i wanted to escape into that and so <clears throat> brown and black was essentially supposed to be okay i need to be a little bit more woke I, I need to be a little bit more uh focus on on race and the history of this country never thinking that this show was going to become essentially therapy for a lot of us and school for a lot of us and you know a connection between us and the audience who was also going through the same thing mike and the thing about doing a show with you for me uh coming at this you know i i don't know if i would call myself a culture vulture okay but i definitely you know i see a lot of movies i definitely listen to and play a lot of music because you know i do radio as well and and now you listen to a lot of podcasts and i now i listen to a lot of podcasts <laughs> but that intersection, uh, which was the original concept of the show uh, of race and pop culture, is interesting. And I've uh, what I've enjoyed, besides all the personal revelations and learning about Black and Latino relations, learning about you know all the things we've explored and discussed on the show, is kind of seeing now how, in the aftermath of what has happened in the last year, where we're headed, alliances to come out of all of that really and truly are. I know we're going to talk about alliances, but that our getting together was an alliance of cultures and perspective. And that is kind of how the world is shifting. Bro, you know, I'm glad that you said that. I'm going to take credit for us being the first to do a Latino and black alliance uh, at this level. There's been people that have done a black brown thing but that doesn't talk about black brown stuff. It's more like there's a guy who happens to have a friend who's Latino uh, and then they get together, but they almost ignore their ethnic background. Right, right. It's like it's like culturally anonymous. They're just two human beings talking. Great. Which, you is, can do which that, is fine. Which, is, which fine. is fine. Which is fine. But but then you can't frame it as, oh, no, we're all about that Latino and black culture together and how that intersection affects culture overall that that wasn't the framing our framing from the very get-go was like listen the world right now when it comes to multicultural affairs in america you're either latino black asian white and you belong in that lane that's your swimming lane you're not allowed to cross over into the other one um 
Univision would never dare, you know, talk to a black network and, you know, do some sort of joint association or anything like that. Everything was, we're black, you're Latino, do your thing on your end and, you know, and then we'll talk, we'll cross over once in a while. But us was like, wait a minute, but why do you have to, if you're NBC News, why do you have to have NBC Black, NBC Asia, NBC Out, NBC Latino? Why can't you just mix all that one thing to create one American website for everybody? And so I felt like Brown and Black was the first attempt to do that. I mean, highly relevant is specifically Latinx. That, that's it, you know? And I had not really heard of anything like our show. So what was it like? to talk to two minorities, the two biggest, most powerful minorities, the most influential in terms of numbers and impact and cultural impact in this country, what would happen if those two people get together, two national pop culture uh, contributors who was on Fox Business News, PBS, Al Jazeera, The Today Show, VH1, on, you know, on my end, what if we were to come together and talk about entertainment, but from our racial analysis of how we've been duped, how we've been, you know, uh, limited by institutional discrimination. How just because they look at our skin colors, you're not allowed to push through a certain ceiling. And I felt that that power to create a brown black unity, dude, now it's caught on. Every organization doesn't just want to work with Latinos. They want to work with Latinos. Hey, is there a black component to that? Maybe let's look at Afro-Latinos. Wait, you guys, we didn't want to put any Afro-Latinos in any pro uh, promo or propaganda or commercial. But now everyone's jumping on the brown and black bandwagon. It's hilarious. And I'm going to take credit. We should take credit for that, Mike. Well, you know, there are a few things you've said there that are interesting and that really starkly contrast how we frame the world now as a result of not only our alliance, but but now really discussing this. You know, you said a couple things that at one time it wouldn't have even stood out to me. You know, you said racial, but we've really discussed how race is a construct. So it probably should be more cultural versus racial. You know, that's one. Two, you said minority. And this conversation that's been brewing is the, the whole idea of us considering ourselves a minority. Uh, taps into the white fear because their fear is of becoming a minority because we're quote unquote taking over. So it's almost looking at the words we use even to describe ourselves. We've reexamined and look at, or at least I do, I, I'm pretty sure you do look at differently, even though it's part of the lexicon, it's just part of how we talk. I feel like we've evolved you know, we, we were, I, I, I do consider us being at the forefront of that because, you know, looking at what we've done on the show for a long, long time, the show we did about Afro Latinos was the most popular show because who's talking about that? No one, dude, but now everyone's talking about it. And I'm a little bit jealous and envious that now everybody wants to kind of take our plan and go, hey, man, why don't we put Latinos, blacks? Hey, I got another idea. Why don't we put Asians into the mix? And create one super show and that everybody will. It's like, but why didn't you fucking do that five years ago? Why didn't you do that 10 years ago? Even though, you know, the market has become a lot more crowded as we're talking. I'm looking on, there's a site called Listen Notes. And we, in our global rank, we're in the top 10%. 
Wow, look at that, Mike. There it is. So that's top ten percent in the world. In the global that's our global ranking. Damn, out of one hundred. That's so, great, man. Yeah, it is, but it also uh says that I think people are hungry for things like this, hungry for conversations like this. They they need I mean, you know, blacks, Latinos, and more importantly, those who are not black and Latino need to understand where we're coming from, need to understand some of the stuff we're talking about and understand what we're up against. I think it's very easy, uh, and it has been, you know, that that whole quote-unquote summer of racial reckoning. One of the things, if you remember, was happening during the pandemic, everybody's buying books on, you know, whiteness and understanding racism and this and that. White people trying to understand what they never paid attention to before. So now... What are we going back to, Jack? Where, where do you see us headed now in terms of, I mean, there's a lot we, we want to talk about in terms of, you know, there's In the Heights and there's, there's you know, West Side Story. And then, you know, we have things that are on TV like them and, and, and you know, uh, Exterminate the Brutes. So things are happening that, that are shifting and, and making people awake. But lifestyle, habits, where, where are we headed? What's you, are we headed to a better world do you think listen i i happen to think that there's this narcissistic part of so many of us not everybody but so many people that live in new york want to be seen want to be acknowledged want to exist to another person they need to sit down and have someone look at their clothes the time that it took for them to pump their biceps look at my hair here in America, we really need to be seen, man. And I think part of normalcy is going back to a city that glamorizes uh, narcissism to a certain extent because it's what, is, it's what allows the economy to flow. You have to go to Bloomingdale's and get the most expensive shoes or, hey, here's um, me hiring a photographer to be an influencer so I can get more you know, brands to, to give me free stuff. I just think culture overall is what makes people tick and what makes people happy. And I think that balancing that now with what we've learned in the last year, that I think is the new lifestyle. It's like woke balance as opposed to just culture, culture, or just being woke, woke, woke. It's the balance of both. And I think we've come to appreciate what it's like to work from home and have maybe a hybrid plan at the office. You know, there's all these things we can now insert into our daily lives from the pandemic. In the Heights, for example, is going to come out in theaters, but it's also going to come out on HBO Max. And so how does that affect the way we interact with culture? Does that mean that every movie theater is going to be packed and you can't walk out, you know, after the movie because there's so many people out on the streets? I don't know, man. I, I think we're coming back to a different world, a world that is going to be a balance of what we had and a balance of what we got in 2020.
So, Mike, a couple of big things uh, that we haven't been on the air, uh, on podcast there at least, for about two weeks, and a lot of shit's gone down. The Warner Discovery merger has been the number one conversation in media. And now, as we're talking, word just broke that Amazon has officially bought for $8.5 billion MGM Studios, which owns the James Bond franchise, Hands Made Tale, Rocky. And there's a lot of content, there's a lot of IPs there that no one else decided to pick up because they didn't want to pay MGM that amount of money. So now we have these mergers and everyone's now talking about that NBC and Viacom are going to merge together as well. What does that mean for Spanish language? I mean, we heard Univision merged with Televisa. Would Univision ever merge with Telemundo to create Unimundo? That's what I'm that, that's what I've coined it. Unimundo. So if you ever if you ever hear it somewhere, it came from me. Unimundo. But, you know, I don't think that that deal would ever happen because of the monopolization of broadcast networks. You can't have that. But who knows, man? I feel like there's no antitrust rules anymore in the government. They're just allowing anybody to get married, not giving two hoots at how that affects the population. So wanted to get your thoughts on the Warner Media and the Amazon MGM and the future of media overall when it comes to mergers. Is it a good thing for us? Is it a bad thing? How, how has it affected you in particular? I think there's always a convergence between money. Where is the money? Who's got the money to buy or, or merge? But then also technology. It's hard right now, I think, for somebody young to believe that at one time, AOL bought Time Warner. And it was AOL Time Warner. Now, AOL is like a relic of the past. If you see somebody with an AOL email, you're like, oh, wow, you're old. Wow, you still have that. But there was a time where everybody had AOL. AOL was dominating. For them to buy Warner Media seemed unheard of. How could a company, a telecommunications company, buy a, a media giant? Well, now media giants have to buy other media giants because, like you said, we're headed into a hybrid world. There is a reason a long time ago why certain companies were buying other companies because they saw trends happening. There's a reason why Facebook tried to buy Snapchat because they saw a trend happening. So audiences literally are, are dictating, I think, whether they know it or not, what's, what's going to happen and, and tastes, public tastes and how we consume entertainment. And I agree with you. I think we're headed back to a hybrid world. And I had this conversation with somebody yesterday. Will theater have a streaming component? If they cannot sell 33% capacity and 50% capacity, and if you have 250 seats, you can only bring in 82 people and not everybody can afford it anyway. So streaming I believe is going to be a component of almost all entertainment. And I think that that's what's going to come. So to me, I'm curious to see what a company like Amazon, because as I watch Amazon, I feel more and more like the movie WALL-E was, was prescient where, you know, there's one mega corporation, you buy your food from them, you watch your movies with them, you know, you, you know, they do everything for you. You know, you have one account gives you access to everything you need in life. And that's what Amazon is becoming. Yeah, well, here's the, the damaging part of all these mergers and acquisitions in my mind. It's that it's going to kill art. And 
I might be a little bit hyperbolic about that, but I do think that when you have companies, well, we found out through the AT&T purchasing of Warner Media, of, of Time Warner, was that it just came out, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, what came out was that AT&T never really had a plan to invest more in art that they really did it was to scale up. It was a business tactic. And Amazon's buying MGM, not for the art, not to create better stories for the planet and for better image representation and to change the self-esteem of little boys of color had, that have never seen themselves. On. That's not what they're doing and they never operate under that guise. They operate under the guise of, okay, well, is this good for Prime Video? Is this good for, you know, our $199 subscription plan, you know, for Amazon? That way they can get free shipping on it. They're spending more time on videos, according to our statistics. Our research personality has also said that if we increase, if we buy more content, we could get more purchase. That's what we're talking about. It's that everything seems to be, how do we make money first? Then you can worry about art second. Business people seem like they hate art. I don't know if any of these guys like Stanky or Zaslav like to enjoy a movie for the sake of the art as opposed to thinking, well, you know, can we take that actor and make him into a superstar? That way we can have him for free and in a, in a, in a cheaper salary for TV, podcasts, websites, uh, social. That's all in their mind. They want to look at art as commerce. And I think that that's the thing that artists like Christopher Nolan hate, that Quentin Tarantino hate. Do we need to evolve? Yes. Is this the way to evolve through all these mergers where they're killing creators? And then the only creators that actually really thrive are the ones that have already been thriving. And there's very little, like Shonda Rhimes has already been picked up. Ryan Murphy's already been picked up. How many more creators? And by the way, they haven't really delivered you know, the amount of money that they're worth. So what are we paying for? And I think that's the big, that's the big issue with me and mergers. I think you're absolutely correct. I think, you know, the commodification of art and properties and IPs, I mean, that is what it's about, you know, and whatever you can sell to the most people, you know, the, the thing that AT&T and AOL have in common is that they both have subscribers, uh, they both have access to your eyeballs. You know, it, it's it's getting to me, it's getting more and more intrusive. You know, uh, I, I bought an HD camera uh, for my computer. Next thing you know, I'm getting all these ads on my Instagram for dark circles. Now it's like, OK, now, wait, did I get up early and 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 do I look tired? I, I, I You know what I mean? Anyway, I'm just saying that we're used to having this these companies that hook into who and what you are, they watch what we're watching, they figure out what we're watching, what we're liking, and then they want to give us more of that. And then they want to pull us into whatever they want. But the other side of that, because you wrote a great article, I thought, about this alliance between Asians and Latinos and what they're trying to do for In the Heights. What I think is interesting about that, and again, this is a test, not only the things you mentioned, but okay, 
this is what we have to do in the metrics to get you to pay attention. If Hollywood's only got to follow the money, okay, we'll show the money and then maybe they'll follow us again. We'll show them we want this and maybe you'll make it for us. So is a symbiotic relationship, I think, there, but at the same time, who yes, is really in and I that? know the answer to that. It's the big conglomerate executives that don't give two hoots about art, really, or creators, really. They just want to commodify it to see how that content can be on a phone. In the meantime, Christopher Nolan's not making a movie for the phone. He's making a movie for art's sake, for the screen's sake, for those pure critics that are out there. Uh, they don't want to commodify everything so it can fit in a phone or on an app or, you know, uh, on a free shipping, uh, you know, promo. That's not what they are making movies and art for. So that's the big problem. And that leads me into the In the Heights article that I wrote um, just yesterday. In the Heights, I flip the lights and start my day. Mike, there's a big push right now, and there's a lot at stake for In the Heights to be the number one movie at the box office. Now, there's details and rumors that I have not been able to confirm just yet, but looks like the In the Heights camp from the studio executives to everybody was like, listen, Latinx movies we feel don't really travel. They barely are established as a successful format within the United States, less even in Latin America. So who's watching Latinx movies? That's why In the Heights is going to be a big test for Latinx creators to see what the barometer, what the affection is for these types of stories. And In the Heights has gotten together with Gold House, which is a non-collective uh, organization, nonprofit organization that is essentially created to enhance and improve the performances of a lot of Asian films. And this is something that has been inspired by African-American tactics and strategies that Tyler Perry has used to make his movies number one. So how have they done it? The Asians decided to kind of study that. They created Gold House. Naleep is now looking into doing this for Latinx stories. And so they've combined together and there's just like Asian Latino love that I talked about, which is not new. I mean, this has been going on since 1903 with the Japanese Mexican labor unions all the way to music with Becky G and J-Hope from BTS uh, to Carlos Estrada and Kelly Marie Tran in Summertime Movie and Ryan the Last Dragon. This fusion of these two cultures is pretty explosive. And the idea is how do we then get blacks to also support In the Heights? If In the Heights flops, Mike, you know what's going to happen. We're never going to see another Latinx movie. Uh, as apart from the ones that are currently being developed. But to greenlight new ones, that's going to be a tough problem because they're going to be like, look, look at your, your, your Latinx savior in the Heights. It didn't do anything. It flopped. So why should we continue to give money? Why should we continue to hire, you know, lead Latino actors like Anthony Ramos? Why should we hire Lin-Manuel Miranda to do anything anymore? It doesn't work. None of, nothing that you guys do will ever work. And how can you argue that when the evidence shows it? But if In the Heights actually reaches number one, like not number two, but number one, does that mean that the floodgates will open? 
Does that mean that what happened with Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther will occur to us? Or are we just a unicorn where this stuff will never happen to us? Will we have our La Bamba? Will we have our Stand and Deliver? What is In the Heights going to do? And what is the social impact for Latinx creators to do that? I happen to believe, and this is what I said in the article, it's not about reaching Latinos to go watch this. We're going to reach them anyway. We were 46% over-indexed on attending uh, Dora the Explorer. 49% for Curse of La Llorona. Two Latinx movies in the last three or four years. How, we know we're going to be hit, hitting 50% within the Heights, but that's not going to cut it. Because Dora didn't do anything just because we showed up. Everyone has to show up. What we have to really show is that whites, blacks, and Asians love our stories and that they love it so much that they're willing to make it a part of their cultural lifestyle, to watch our stuff, the way Latinos watch black stuff, the way Latinos watch white stuff. How do we get blacks to watch Latino content? How do we get Asians and whites to love our stories the way whites love Coco? They went 51% to go see that movie while Latinos went 36%. So people can like our stuff in cartoons, great, but what about live action? And this movie, In the Heights, it's going to be the barometer, Mike. What happens and what will it say to Hollywood if In the Heights flops and West Side Story is a hit? And what will it say the converse if In the Heights is a hit and then West Side Story flops? Mm, interesting. Well, you will never be able to say that In the Heights is a bad story because it won it won the Tony for Best Musical, I believe it was in 2007. But it might not connect with audiences. Well, but but if you're a Latinx audience. person and a white person that saw that show on Broadway, brother, that th there was nothing better that year. There wasn't anything better for like two to three years until maybe Hamilton came out, in my opinion. Just absolutely transcendental what that show did on Broadway live. And I think what people, a lot of people are going to ask is why did it flop? And they're going to look at several things, right? Like right now, these are questionable issues of, well, number one, why did you hire an Asian director to direct a Latino movie? Now, we've heard what Carlos Estrada has said, but Carlos was referring to Ryan the Last Dragon, which is a animated feature. Uh, Coco was an animated feature. So maybe everybody likes animated formats, but live action is a little different. So John Chu in that, maybe we should have gotten Lin-Manuel Miranda or a Kenny Ortega or another Latino director to have directed that film from a different perspective. Um, you might look at, I think another big question is, why is Anthony Ramos the lead of In the Heights when the lead of In the Heights is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin's producing that. He's not directing. 
He's not rewriting a whole new script from scratch. It's already been written. And he's Usnavi. He's the lead. He's in the Heights. Yet he plays the Piragua guy in the movie. I actually would have enjoyed to see the real Piragua guy in there. Uh, and there's some nods and homages and Easter eggs, you know, for Hamilton and in the Heights there and Lin-Manuel's creations. But why didn't Lin lead that? Maybe that was a safer bet since he's a bigger name maybe than Anthony Ramos, even though Anthony Ramos has just got hired as the protagonist for the new Transformers reboot with Angel Manuel Soto. That's going to be interesting. But, you know, if it doesn't work, maybe people are going to question, well, was Anthony Ramos the right choice? So these are questions that are going to be swirling around it, but you'll never be able to say it's a bad, maybe it's a bad film adaptation that didn't work and that might affect us overall. But if West Side Story actually works, then we're going to come back to this idea of, well, remaking a classic with a white director and a combination of white and Latinos in a movie maybe makes better sense than just telling purely Latino stories that are localized, like Washington Heights in New York. How does that play at, you know, Montmartre in Paris? How does that play in Barranquilla, Colombia? How does that play in Santa Fe, Argentina? How does that play in Guadalajara, Mexico? You know, we asked George Lopez one day, why doesn't he just go to Mexico and perform there as a Mexican-American? Because they're two different things. Even though they're Mexican, they're completely separated, man. They don't connect. They don't relate to each other. They're two different. It's apples and oranges, even though it's Mexican. So... There's going to be a lot of questions if it flops. If it if it does well, if West Side Story flops and In the Heights does well, then we would say something along the lines. You see, that's what you get for having a white director try and uh, direct a Latino-like movie. And uh, these remakes were never going to work of something that was already perfect. So why did you mess with it? You see, we need more original Latinx stories that people like, the authenticity of it. I'm giving you two arguments, Mike. If it does well, and I think it will do well. My prediction is that it will do well. I think it'll do well enough that it won't answer with finality the question, is there a black and Latino market? I think it'll do well, and then all eyes will be on West Side Story. Will this continue? Because it's not enough. It is absolutely not enough, as history shows us, for there to be one successful Latino film. It's not enough. You know, we've had a number of Latino films like, what happened? There was La Bamba. There was, you know, Edward James Olmos film. There, there's been a number of films, and there have been a number of, of fits and starts for Latino content. And there's a lot of stuff in development and in the pipeline. I hope that it's just starting to crest and that that'll happen West Side Story will happen. A few of these other films that we're seeing will happen. Actors like Danny Ramirez. I believe that it's beginning. That's my thought, because these are these are the biggest Latino IPs properties that there are on the planet right now. West Side Story and In the Heights. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a Flaming Hot Cheetos IP that could be happening because, you know, blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, they eat Cheetos as well. And so maybe this might be interesting that the guy who created that that's now in controversy that supposedly he did not now. But let's just say that he did. Eva Longoria is directing it. That might be something interesting along the lines of what Michael Keaton did with the McDonald's movie. Uh, then there is the Blue Beetle that's being directed by Angel Manuel Soto, who's not proven yet. 
that might flop, that might not, but I don't think they're going to allow him to because it's a Warner Brothers and the first Latino superhero. Listen, Queen of the South on the USA Network owned by NBC is a English language reboot of La Reina del Sur from Telemundo. And from the demographic readings that you see from it, that show, it's I believe it's in its fifth, sixth season. Black people watch it more than Latino people do. And we were asking, well, what is it? And there is that sector of the black populace that enjoys these cartel movies, man. Uh, these narcos shows, these sort of, uh, you know, gang-related stories, you know, about Latinos. They, they, they like that. This particular group likes those types of movies. And so does a lot of people, man, to be quite honest with you. Um, they also love horror movies. So maybe the idea, and this is what I'm proposing, you can't create Latino movies just for Latinos. You got to create Latino movies for everyone. And if I were to be looking at the top people to reach out to, here's what I would do. I would create movies for white people. I would create movies for black people. And I would create movies for Asian people, not specifically, but all together. So that means what is that we all watch together in unison, no matter the ethnicity, the age, the gender, it's genre movies. It's Marvel science fiction movies. It's also horror films. Maybe comedy doesn't play well with Spanish language Latinx just because comedy is different depending on the culture you're in. You know, some jokes fall, some don't. That's why George Holpins won't go to Mexico. But if you just create genre films where a Latino person might be the lead, but his friends are white and black and Asian, now you're talking that it's not a Latino movie may the story might be latino but the universe is universal it's it's multicultural and i think that that is the only way that i believe that more people will come to see our stories is if we include everyone not just latinos That's it for this 50th episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirada. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you next week on another episode of, of Brown, Brown and Black. Black. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.